if you're a hunter-gatherer, one of the easiest things to gather is from the storehouse of a, a neighboring group of agriculturalists. And that raises the need for organized defense. And when you have the need for an army, you tend to start having kings and chiefs and so on. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we were talking about politics. We were talking about government, terms related to that. We made the comment in the last episode, at some point we did not have government. Government is a result of not having government, but it all started somewhere. Yeah, well, I used to teach this subject in the World Civilizations class, and one of the topics that we had to address is where did government come from? Where did civilization come from? Because for thousands of years, people lived essentially as hunter-gatherers in small groups. Um, the hunting, of course, we're all familiar with, you know, whether you're shooting gazelles or elk or whatever you're after or rabbits. Um, gathering, of course, had to do with berries and nuts and leaves that uh, could be eaten. And often the two roles were divided along um, gender lines with the women doing most of the gathering, men doing most of the hunting, but that's not always the case. And actually, most of the diet of hunter-gatherers consists of non-meat products, except in the far north where Inuit groups, for instance, might live a lot on whale blubber and seal blubber and not very much on berries and so on. But uh, those groups tended to be much more informal in their government. That is, they, they wouldn't have usually elected chiefs. And we know something about this by studying hunter-gatherer groups that persisted into the 19th and early 20th centuries. There's still a few in um, the interior of the Amazon and a few other very remote places which have been studied. And there are hierarchies, but often there's a great emphasis on sharing. And some of these groups would say that if you were a hunter, you should uh, give out all the meat to other people first before you and your family got to have some. And, you know, you would get your share, but your obligation to the group was more important than uh, saying, I'm the hunter, I, so I get to be boss. And that just was not acceptable. And this can be idealized, and I'm um, sure there were disputes. We know that people sometimes killed each other in hunter-gatherer groups, but there wasn't a structured government as such. What happens is that people develop the ability to grow crops and to settle down. Instead of roaming about the landscape, following the seasons and, and looking for something to eat, they, they grow what they need to eat. This has a lot of advantages. It's more more stable. And it also means that they're not getting as much variety in their diet. They tend to settle on one staple like wheat or rice and eat mostly that. And if, particularly if you're uh, sort of a subsistence farmer, that's what you're going to spend your time doing. And maybe shoot an occasional bird that comes down in your crops with a bow and arrow if you can do it. Um, however... Agricultural societies also need to store grain, and that makes them vulnerable to raiders. 
And if you're a hunter-gatherer, one of the easiest things to gather is from the storehouse of a, a neighboring group of agriculturalists. And that raises the need for organized defense. And when you have the need for an army, you tend to start having kings and chiefs and so on. So the rise of government is, we think, pretty much simultaneous with the development of agriculture. And it's not done so much to protect the people as to protect the food, although the people are obviously attached to the food. It means also people are more bound in place, that if you want to have reliable agriculture, and this seems to have arisen first in the Middle East and particularly in in Anatolia, in the eastern part of Turkey, and then in uh, Mesopotamia, although there's some dispute about other things, but that's sort of the mainstream thought. It it also means that if the food is stored, then it has to be allotted properly. Somebody has to say who gets what, um, who guards the the food and so on, you start to get some stratification and differences in occupation. You're going to be a soldier, you're going to be a farmer, you're going to be a grain guardian. Are you going to be the person who writes the tablets that record who grew how much and maybe how much should go to the king? Uh, That was an awful lot of the cuneiform tablets we find from ancient Sumer uh, about that sort of thing. Not so much Great stories of Gilgamesh, you know, mm. there so, some of those, but there's an awful lot of recording so-and-so has X number of cattle or, or whatever. Mm. A lot of business transactions. So uh, trading, merchants, that all starts to come in. Money gets developed. Uh, people have to regulate the money. You get bankers, you get loans. All of this develops out of agriculture. Now, as these little city-states grow, uh, the temptation comes to grow even more by just taking over another neighboring one. So this happens in Egypt with uh, Upper Egypt, that is Southern Egypt, taking over Northern Egypt, uh, and uh, which was called the Lower Egypt, and building a little empire, so become a nation. It happens in the Middle East in, in ancient Sumer, conquering others. And more obscurely now, the Hittites up in Turkey built their own empire in the same way, conquering neighboring towns and, and just growing and growing. And with that kind of conquest, you get more and more a need for a professional army, uh, for a whole group of servers to serve the army. And of course, the leaders tend to treat themselves to all kinds of nice things and hire artists and musicians, as well as uh, household servants and concubines and guardians. And, you know, just it, it, you get all kinds of stratification. And that's where government comes from. It grows out of agriculture. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's been with us ever since civilization began. Civilization was not developed because some simple hunter-gatherers sat around and thought, you know what, we need a really good civilization where we could get some great, besides all these epic stories that we like to tell each other, we could have some other complexity in our lives. And how about we uh, just get a government going? It didn't happen that way. It's pretty much imposed <laughs> on people. Yeah, it developed organically out of needs and uh um, a, a certain amount of efficiency in it, where the people just dis- got together and decided that uh, it might be a little more efficient if we had some organization to 
where our efforts went. Well, people on the top, anyway. I don't think yeah. it was very democratic in the way people decided. Another element that was very important early on in uh, both China and Mesopotamia and, and some other places in the world eventually, and we see it in the, uh, in the Inca and so on too, is the need for terracing and uh, irrigation dishes. Now, those are things that an individual really can't do well uh, if you need a big system of terracing and irrigation, um, that's a group project and somebody has to be in charge and say, OK, I know you'd rather be back cultivating your own fields. But for this month of the year, you are going to work on our irrigation project. And why? Because I'm the boss. I told you it's good for everybody. You'll benefit in the long run. But uh, whether you like it or not. This, this is the project, and people would be compensated in most cases, but sometimes it was slave labor. And, of course, slavery emerges along with civilization, too. That's very much a part of ancient government. But uh, the, the kinds of big-scale agriculture that get engaged in uh, really require a lot of centralized government. You have to decide where the irrigation ditch is going to be dug, who gets the water. How is it distributed? Right. And you mentioned, I mean, right from the get-go, of course, there would, there would be an element of the population that would be more in service to the government and maybe people at the higher strata who might benefit better from the government or the social structure or whatever we're calling it in these early stages. So I don't want to go through all the possible different kinds of government that can be, but I thought we'd hit on ones that still are alive in debates about government today in which people refer to. And the first one would be feudalism, hmm. which uh, European feudalism, I mean, there's other feudalisms too, but European feudalism is, is still politically important. And it was a medieval system that evolved during the early Middle Ages, what used to be called the Dark Ages, which is something historians have tried to banish. They don't like that term because they said there was a lot of innovation going on during those so-called Dark Ages. Actually, not that much, but <laughs> if you specialize in an area, you don't like to be thought of as, as having as your subject something where nothing much happened. So <laughs> they put a lot of exercise. Oh, the development of the plow. That was great. And uh, the uh, the moldboard plow and the harness for horses. Yeah, another big one. <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah. Compared to the later Middle Ages and Renaissance, uh, it really is not that, that exciting. But setting aside that particular issue, what happens is that a large part of the population becomes fixed to the soil. That is, these people who become known as peasants later are unable to leave their jobs farming. Uh, they don't own their farms they hold it from the owner of the land who is the lord so the, the local lord a count or a duke or an earl or whatever uh, owns the land and then his peasants work for him a certain share of what they produce has to go to him usually in kind that is a certain amount of grain milk whatever it is the cheese they're producing and they are told what they have to do and they're told they can't just 
pull up and leave. They're not allowed to. And if you're a peasant, your children will also be peasants. Um, in fairy tales, the daughter of a peasant often gets to marry the king. But if you look closely at those fairy tales, even there, they usually say, oh, well, we thought she was a peasant, but she was actually uh, taken away at birth or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kidnapped by pirates. Yeah, you know, that's, that's either the male or the female. So the, it was pretty strong idea that you were fixed in your class. The only way out really was to join the clergy. And even there, if you wanted to become a priest in, in most of the Middle Ages, uh, you had to come from money somehow in order to enter the priesthood. Very few people were saints like Francis uh, who was able to make his way as an inspiring figure and get to be in charge of an order of monks. Monks, too, sometimes uh, were simply the younger sons of families that wanted their firstborn sons to inherit everything. So the younger sons had to go into the church. But uh, you could always be a hermit, I suppose, if you could go off into the woods and build a hut. But hermits were rare. So it, it was a way of controlling things. And uh, feudalism was stable for a pretty long time. It had the same characteristic we spoke of earlier, of early governments, in that feudal lords often fought with each other and tried to take over each other's holdings. So a tremendous number of wars. And one of the duties of a peasant was to go to war for his lord, whether it was his, in his interest or not. Probably not, because it would take him away from the land, often in times when he really needed to be planting or sowing or weeding or whatever. And uh, the lord would have his idea, well, this would be a really good time to go over and attack the neighboring kingdom. There were tremendous number of wars. So it stabilized uh, the country socially in terms of people's social status, but it did not stabilize uh, an area in terms of making government stable. That happens through the same old process of people like Charlemagne, who goes out and manages to conquer a lot of neighboring kingdoms. Not, however, Spain, as the uh, Song of Roland would have you believe, but and other early kings set up these kingdoms built up in a pyramidal fashion. So you get layer on layer of noblemen. And again, your local nobleman then might owe obedience to some other feudal lord above him. And then that feudal lord might owe his holding to the king. And there could be many, many layers. And in some cases, those noblemen were bishops, people in the church. So feudalism has to do with having uh, reciprocal legal and military obligations. And well, what obligations did the Lord have to his peasants? Well, not that much. He was supposed to protect them when other people invaded, but he was usually going to protect them by calling on them, the males anyway, to serve in the military and fight off the invaders. It wasn't that much that people got from their lords. During the French Revolution, it was popular to complain about the droit du seigneur, the supposed right that a lord had to take the maidenhead of a woman who was being married to another peasant. He always got the, the right of the first night, the jus prima noctis, is referred to in Latin. Uh, this was actually quite rare and almost never practiced. It was a kind of a theoretical thing in which the peasant would say, okay, I don't want you to be the first one to sleep with my bride-to-be, uh, so I'm going to pay a fine instead and I give you the the money and that'll that'll buy it off. It's, it's kind of a sexy idea in some people's minds, and so it got a lot of publicity, but it really was never 
something that was widely practiced. Um, but feudalism certainly had plenty of abuses to it, but it was extremely stabilizing in terms of not letting society change a lot. It wasn't until the emergence of trade on a wide scale and merchants as a separate class come about that you really begin to see the transformation of Europe in the late Middle Ages or what historians now call the early modern period. Sure. And I think, yeah, one point is the way it gets used today is it's a derogatory term, right? A feudal society is used. This is some backward or undemocratic system. It may feel uh, futile to be living in a system like that, but it's not futilism. It's not F-U-T-I-L-E, feudalism. It's feudalism, F-E-U-D-A-L-I-S-M. So there's a little little bit of a spelling demon in there, um, the F-E-U. But we can always keep in mind uh, the word, it's spelled like the word feud. But uh, and that that, too, may lead you down the wrong road, though, because uh, it's got nothing to do with the word feud. They they derive from two separate places. Those those words feudalism, although you might think they could be connected because so many wars have been fought over property and uh, feudalism is all about dividing up the property. And uh, uh, you might think, well, this is a system where a lot of feuds develop, but it's got nothing to do with the word feud. No, but um, the holding that uh, a person had in a feudal society was called a fiefdom. So F-I-E-F-D-O-M. So it was a piece of property owned by a lord, usually. But today, the term is used to label an area of action over which someone exercises strong control. It's interesting to me that the Oxford English Dictionary has not caught up with this meaning. The OED is kind of slow to pick up on slang. And I would say this goes beyond slang, though. I think it's uh, it's very common in political discourse. Uh, here's an example uh, I just looked for a few examples on Google, and uh, somebody was criticizing the mayor of New Haven, saying, watch out for those who will continue to enable this mayor to run the city like her private fiefdom. Yes, right. Uh, and then I found an, uh, a really distant one, an Indian Teachers Association in India, warning the administration that their university is, quote, no one's personal fiefdom, and that it is an institution that belongs to the people of India. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's an online blog attacking Donald Trump that says his instincts are like those of strongmen such as Mobutu, Sese Seiko, and Putin, is to see the state as a personal fiefdom and a vehicle for dispensing favors to family and political allies rather than as something that needs to follow neutral rules. So although feudalism may be pretty much gone, the fiefdom in the, this uh, rhetorical sense is very much with us. And as you say, feudalism and fiefdom are, they're both terms from organized agrarian economies and uh, property and persons that work the property uh, drove the economy. And uh, that could be exchanged for service in the military as a knight or something going to fight, fight battles for the, for the, the person in charge of the whole affair. Now, fiefdom also has a little bit of a spelling demon. It's spelled F I E. F-D-O-M. Right. Follows the I before E except after C rule that sometimes works. Almost entirely useless rule, but uh, sometimes yeah. it helps you remember certain spellings. It would be rare for a uh, peasant to become a soldier, but um, or uh, a knight, rather. It would be mm-hmm. rare for a, a peasant to become a knight, mm-hmm. but a soldier, a foot soldier, 
Yes. Um, there's, uh, we just saw a production of Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part One, uh, and Falstaff talks about the guys that he's recruited to fight in the, in the battles of the future Henry V, Prince Hal is uh, one of the but of course he's a nobleman but uh, Falstaff who is technically a nobleman but not of a very noble sort gets a lot of just starvelings that are just used to, as cannon fodder essentially and that would be kind of the role of the, of the peasant they're the ones that take the brunt of the fighting when you read accounts of feudal warfare often the people were more interested not in killing knights but in capturing them because you could ransom them for money. Mm. There were a lot of wars where the main point was not to kill the opposition but to acquire somebody who was worth ransoming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Happened famously to Richard the First Lionheart. Yeah, and the, yeah, I, should, I shouldn't be saying that the, you could be a knight, but it, you could still be a military employee. So how do we get from feudalism to democracy, more modern government? Well, um, we have to go through monarchy first. And I think monarchy is interesting enough to deserve separate treatment. But most people are familiar with the idea. Well, I already talked about the evolution of kings. And as, as you get kings with a series of nobles underneath, the nobility can build up to a level where the king actually needs some consent from time to time from his nobles to undertake something, whether it's spending money, uh, launching a war, uh, getting some kind of right or other. And that happens in both England and France, so that you get the notion of voting of people who are not the absolute ruler at the top having something to say about things. So it's not democracy yet, but it is a voting. What happens with democracy is, well, democracy starts famously in ancient Greece again, means literally rule by the people, from Greek demos, who is the common people, uh, Demos was originally a municipality with its own local government, but it also came to mean the people who populated the municipality. The popular government by citizens was called Demokratia, the most famous example being 5th century Athens, which uh, interestingly alternated between periods of self-rule and rule by tyrants. This, this system allowed for something very similar to what we call um, martial law is invoked in a lot of countries where suddenly uh, the rights of, of the legislature are suspended and the government starts doing things in a very high-handed fashion. We certainly have seen recent examples of that. Um, the Greeks felt uh, evidently that sometimes they didn't trust themselves that things got so out of control that maybe democracy wasn't the best way to go and they would elect somebody and say, okay, you be the tyrant for a while. And it didn't at first necessarily have negative meanings. In fact, uh, undemocratic acting tyrants were among those who helped to set up some of the basic rules for democracy in Athens, um, put somebody in force and say, okay, give us a better form of government. <laughs> Go ahead. The, the tug of war between Socrates and his opponents had to do with uh, Socrates really preferring to have a tyranny of, of a certain kind, uh, that is, of, of philosophers. <laughs> uh, but um, his opponents saying, but that's undemocratic. 
and uh, that that was the main reason that he was executed really for opposing what he considered a mobocracy you know just uh, the crazy mm -hmm. passions of ignorant people trying to to govern themselves the only a minority of residents in ancient athens were counted as citizens eligible to vote the ones excluded can included males under 30 women slaves um, a lot of slaves and non-native residents uh, being excluded. There was no way to become a naturalized citizen. If your ancestors had come from Sparta or some other place, uh, too bad. You were never going to become a citizen. So it was only about 20% of the inhabitants that could vote. And at least it's twice as many people living in Athens were slaves. So when we praise Athens as this great um, forebearer of uh, democracy uh, yeah they do give us the idea and some of the practice but it's pretty limited so what happens is that in the course of the rise of the merchant class you get a group of people who are neither nobles nor peasants they're not attached to the land they're they're bankers they're traveling merchants they're investors in um, ships that they're sending out uh, to get merchandise and sell it they're in the marketplace um, these people start to get a lot of money and get very powerful whereas the old feudal class mostly is tied still to the land they're getting most of their income from agriculture which is much more stable stable but not uh, as profitable and that creates an imbalance and whenever you have a situation in which the money is flowing into hands of people who have very little political power it's unstable that's an observation anybody could have made but Karl Marx very famously made it and it destabilized things so we get the emergence of the French Revolution for instance where this new middle class, the bourgeoisie, the people who live in the city, not out on the bourgeoisie, the, the bourg is the city, you live in a bourg, you're a bourgeois. And you have different ideas and values and you begin to think, uh, I got rich by a lot of my own efforts. I don't owe it to the king. I owe it to what I did. And my kids have the possibility of getting even richer. Mm -hmm. So who's the king to tell me? what to do and why should I have to be paying him all these taxes and stuff? He's not doing me any good. He just takes my money. You still have, of course, a lot of poor people also in the city who are not technically bourgeois. They're the servants and the beggars and so on. And those people make up a mob, but they're not the ones that lead the revolution. It's the middle class. So the bourgeoisie says, okay, we want to get in on this. This business of calling uh, these uh, legislative sessions where the noblemen get all the say is they manage to get more of a say and they're the ones that lead the charge into what becomes the French Revolution and the establishment of democracy in revolutionary France in 1789. This is after the American Revolution. Of course, we're all very sensitive about that, but it should be mentioned that it was both landholders and business people that led the revolution in America. Um, because we didn't have peasants. We had indentured servants, true, but they worked in the cities as well in the country. They weren't really important as a political thing. And, and once you served out your term of indenture, uh, you were free. And, and so America broke 
in a less painful way with monarchy than did, did the French. Uh, the French really went through a violent one and through a repeated one. They kept gaining and losing, and Napoleon comes along and pretty much reverses the practice and reinvents monarchy, and, uh, according to his own taste, calling it something different. But the republics in France had to fight their way up back and forth with monarchy being reinstalled from time to time. But it's it's essentially an economic thing, I think, in the long run. It's not just that uh, people who are being oppressed want to be free and have control of things. It's people who already have a lot of power because of their wealth want to have political power as well. And they idealize this by saying, well, this is the rule of the people. And at first, of course, it's not the rule of everybody in England and America like uh, poor people didn't get full political power. In, in America, the senators uh, were elected by landholders and so on. Uh, and in Britain, for a long time, the franchise was not extended to everybody. Now, this term franchise is kind of an interesting one. Uh, we'll get into later. Right. Enfranchisement is uh, acquiring the vote. Voting is really at the core of democracy as we know it. And we need to talk about that, and we need to talk about what a, a republic is and uh, other forms of uh, democracy. But we better save that for next time, shall we? Yes. Look forward to it. So long, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.